Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into my top 10 March films in today's episode. What's this? What's this? The simply sensational standing ovation on Royal Dalton Music Today's episode is uh, about the top 10 movies I saw in March that, for the first time, um, and that's it. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, March was a pretty good month, all things considered. Um, it also featured a bunch of rewatches, uh, at least as far as the MCU, but uh, compared to previous months, at least in, in January and February, a lot, a lot, a lot of foreign language films uh, we're seeing this month, and and a lot of that has to do with my <laughs> uh, renewed vigor in in finishing uh, listener Moran's top three hundred film list. Uh, as many of the films on this top ten come from that list, uh, let me see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven of the top ten uh, from this month come from that list, uh, which has been a great sort of funnel and, and directional uh, motivator. As uh, I think when I f- uh, finally determined I needed to finish that off, I, I think there were 70, give or take, 70 movies uh, on that top 300 that I had yet to see. Uh, the plan was to watch one, at least one a day. I think I slipped a little bit, especially with the scavenger hunt, sort of um, throwing a wrench in things uh, here at the start of April, but uh, definitely making huge, huge waves in terms of uh, knocking those out. Uh, beyond that, there are some some documentaries on this list, um, and uh, I'm, I'm excited. Not a lot of new stuff. Uh, only two of the ten films are from this year, which is a good thing. You know, always good to discover good, you know, high quality older films because you just you never know what's out there. And um, it's really easy to get excited for something coming out, you know, the next week or so. But it's a very different thing to to kind of uncover something from the past. And I think that's really fascinating. So let's um, let's jump into this. Let's jump into <clears throat> my top ten movies I saw for the first time in March. Countdown. Starting us off, uh, number 10 is one of the aforementioned 2019 films. Uh, This one I saw March 2nd, 2019, very early on in the month. It is 94 minutes long, give or take. Uh, My summary, the mission to land man on the moon. I gave this film a 78. Last I looked, it had a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, directed by Todd Douglas Miller, starring Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins, and Walter Cronkite. Uh, It's Apollo 11. And I talked about Apollo 11 on here uh, a little bit. Uh, And and it's just a fascinating found footage documentary 
uh, you know, it, none none of this none of the stuff you're gonna see is is from, you know, the last forty years of of the world. It's all from footage from the event taken at the time it happened and during its its occurrence, and it it, it just it looks so amazing for a film that was shot fifty years ago. It has this remarkable magical quality to it and it's you know i i think short of having lived through the event this is the closest you're gonna come uh to to experiencing it and uh i think this is more effective at uh at doing the moon landing than first man was obviously first man is is not entirely about that it's a very different movie but uh, not a very different movie it's a different movie but man apollo 11 is is just a a a remarkable undertaking and it's incredibly tense despite knowing exactly what what happens and i i think that's a huge credit to the editing to the to the direction to the filmmaking and on display here and you know the sound mixing uh is is all that kind of combines to form this really tense and yet joyous documentary that goes well above and beyond uh what you know is necessary and it's all the better for it so my number 10 from 2019 is apollo 11. My number nine uh, is also a documentary. I, I saw it March 31st, so the last day of the month. Uh, it is a, uh, I, it's a 79 minutes long, uh, the shortest film on this list. It is from 2010. My summary, two rival clinics operating across the street from each other. I gave this a 79. It currently has no score in Rotten Tomatoes. Directed by Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady. Uh, It is called 12th and Delaware. So, March 31st, I, if you follow me on Letterboxd, I took the opportunity and watched five documentaries that either dealt directly with uh, abortion or tangentially with abortion. Uh, this was one of them, and uh, of the five, my favorite. Uh, and and the sort of premise of this, the two uh, clinics operating opposite each other. One is uh, a a clinic that is pregnancy care, so uh, or in other words, anti-abortion. And across the street is a women's health clinic that does do abortions and uh, this isn't exactly a documentary that has talking heads it is very much an observational documentary that kind of just folk you know you know just listens to the people on either side of the street uh and and in between about what they think and what their reaction is and what you know you know, watches them as some woman uh, chooses to go to the opposite uh, clinic from them, and what what that tells them, what that means to them, and how that affects them, and what they're willing to do uh, to, in either side's eyes, you know, save 
this woman slash this unborn child. And it, it, it does, you know, I am pretty staunchly in favor of, of abortion and pro-choice in my, my life. But I, I think, you know, this is very similar to another documentary called uh, Behind the Curve, which is filmed and, and created in such a way that, you know, it fo- that Behind the Curve focuses a lot on flat earth, uh, flat earthers, and it never tries to tell you to be a flat earther uh, with the way it's filmed. It also never says that this is, you know, it, it never uses its the its directorial hand to tell you this is silly or stupid or wrong. It lets the people within the movement within that idea try to convince you, and it you know it takes just observational footage and 12th and Delaware does the same thing it follows people who work on both clinics it's le- it gives both of them an opportunity to, to say whatever they want to say uh, it feels very authentic it talks to protesters who protest the women's health clinic that does give abortions it um, it talks to women who have been to one or the other clinic and what they think and how they react what was told to them and uh, I just think it does a really good job of not being heavy-handed, not picking a side uh, in in how it's filmed, but just letting these people tell you what this means to them and how it impacts them. And uh, that is far better, most of the time, far better documentary filmmaking uh, than, than not. Uh, so I would recommend it. I, I think it's worth a watch. Um, you know, it's. I don't think it's really going to give you... It's not the kind of movie or documentary that's going to explain more about abortion. It's not going to get into, you know, ticky-tacky details. Uh, but it does let you into the minds of the people uh, directly involved in the fight for and against it. And uh, that, in and of itself, is is worth checking out. So, my number nine... With uh, in 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 March, uh, that I gave a 79, 12th and Delaware. Number eight is the other 2019 film on this list. Um, I saw it March 25th. It is 117 minutes long. My summary: A family on vacation are confronted by chaos as another family that looks like them arrive uninvited. Arrives uninvited grammar I gave this a 79 it last I looked had a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes directed by Jordan Peele starring Lupita Nyong'o, Winston Duke, Evan Alex Shahadi Wright Joseph, Elizabeth Moth, Tim Heidecker Yahya Abdul-Mateen II Anna Diop and others uh, is Us another film I, I have talked about already so I won't go too deep into this but Us uh, sophomore effort uh, sophomore directorial effort for Jordan Peele is a very, very good horror social commentary thriller film. Uh, definitely leans a little more into the horror genre than Get Out did. Uh, and as I noted in my review episode, I think it's a little less focused than Get Out was. And for me, that doesn't work as well. 
uh, I know other people have said that that does work just as well, or if not better, for them. And hey, that's great. I think it's a really good movie. It just doesn't quite reach uh, the level that Get Out did for me. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o is incredible. And um, looking into... I, still still behind. haven't been able to put up uh, the 2019 Circle Film Award current nominees yet. But Us currently ranks on the Best Picture, Best Director, Lupita Nyong'o for Best Lead, um, Winston Duke, and... Elizabeth Moss and Shahadi Wright Joseph are all on the best supporting performance list. It's on best screenplay, best score, best tactile effects, best special effects, and best scene. Uh, scene is the category that's still holding me back from being able to post that, so I can't tell you exactly what scenes at the moment, but it's on there. Uh, so yeah, this is at this point in the year, it's one of the best films I've seen, and uh, yeah, it, it's. it's Elements of it are definitely going to stick around uh, all year. I hope. I hope they do because th they deserve to, and it is worth 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 your worth your investment, worth your worth your watch. So that's number eight, Jordan Peele's Us, number eight in March, with a score of seventy nine. Okay, number seven. Uh, number seven. I saw this March twenty sixth. It's from, uh, it's a 107 minutes long, it's from 1976, so we're going back a, back a ways. My summary, the owner of a cabaret falls into debt and is forced to perform a hit for a mobster. I gave this film an 80, it has an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Directed by John Cassavetes, starring Ben Gazzara, Timothy Carey, Seymour Cassell, and Robert Phillips, among others. Uh, is The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. It's a film, John Cassavetes is uh, a well-known name in, in filmmaking. Uh, this is the third film of his I've seen after Faces and Shadows, neither of which uh, really spoke to me that much. Um, I can appreciate them, but I, I, you know, they just never clicked with me. And, and maybe it is... Uh, the period of time in Cassavetti's career as a director. Shadows came out in the late 50s, Faces was in the late 60s, and this is, you know, mid to late 70s for Ch Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Uh, but Killing of a Chinese Bookie really clicked for me. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think Ben Gazzara is great in, this, in the lead role. Um, it's, a, it's a really dirty movie. It's a really gritty movie. Uh, but you, you really can't kind of look away, because I think Gazzara, beyond Gazzara's performance, um, just the, the the sleaziness of everything that's happening, the colors, the lighting uh, of the film, and just the sort of impossible way to, to watch this guy. So, so Gazzara's character, Cosmo Vitelli, the proprietor of, of a cabaret, is forced to... Um, he gets in debt, and at the very, I think the very early in the movie, he finishes paying off a debt, only to get in debt a second time. And the only way he can get out of it is to run a hit on this this mobster. And I think the way that uh, the film is written uh, by Cassavetes and 
how all these details that are presented to you, the viewer, and to Cosmo Ben Gazzara's character, slowly kind of unravel themselves in an authentic and satisfying way to kind of hammer home just how once you, you know, he, I, I love the idea that like you put yourself in debt, you're now kind of at the mercy of the person you're indebted to, you know, whatever they want, whatever they need, whatever they say is what you're going to do, follow, listen to, obey. And it kind of plays with this idea of misinformation in that if you're indebted to me and I say, hey, I need you to go get this book from this place. Well, what you don't know is that it's not my book. You're stealing it from this place. It's worth, you know, I don't know, $2,500, yada, 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 yada. You know, it's a higher risk thing. And, you know, I'm just saying, hey, go get this book. And that's kind of what happens here where Seymour Cassell, I think, Cassell, uh, who plays Mort, who's the the mobster that he that Cosmo becomes indebted to, it's like, hey, I need you to do this thing for me. Bada bing, bada boom, super easy, you're done. And of course, you ever seen a movie with mobsters in it? It's never super easy, bada bing, bada boom. It's always, now there's 20 complications. And it's kind of how this happens. And I think Cassavetes really captures that element of it. That's the thing that I really latched onto watching the film was, yeah, this is, uh, this is really uh, way more complicated <laughs> than it seems to be. And uh, it all kind of always works out that way. And in this and Killing of a Chinese Bookie does a great job of showing that element, showing that 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 complication. Um, and and I was really appreciative of that. Um, yeah, Killing of a Chinese Bookie. I I really enjoyed it, and um, one of my favorite films from 1976. And, um, yeah, a great find. What, you know, the, this is one of those movies, and most of these movies at the top of this list here, that I, I wasn't even aware of. Uh, I'd never even heard of most of these. Uh, I think only one of the movies above this was I aware of before I watched it. And that's, that's a thing in and of itself, you know. Obviously, I knew who John Cassavetes was, uh, having seen some of his movies, but just... Killing of a Chinese Bookie kind of came out of nowhere. So, highly recommend this if you haven't seen it. I think it's definitely worth a watch. That's my number seven in March with a score of 80. Number six. Uh, number six is uh, from March. Uh, I saw this March 18th, 2019. It uh, is 97 minutes long. It's from 1947, the oldest film on this top 10 list. Uh, my summary, a former private eye's past catches up with him. I gave this also an 80. It has a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes, last I looked. Directed by Jacques Tourneur. Tourneur? Tourneur, I think. Uh, starring Robert Mitchum, Jane Greer, Kirk Douglas, Rhonda Fleming, Richard Webb, Steve Brody, Virginia Houston, among others. Is a movie called Out of the Past. And one of the most fascinating elements of Out of the Past and the thing that I took away from this, because on its surface, I think it's a very simple movie. 
Uh, former private eye's past catches up with him. Robert Mitchum is the former private eye. He seems to be, uh, at the start of the film, just now kind of owns a gas station, trying to put that life behind him. He's dating a local woman. And suddenly things from his past return and resurface in the form of Wit Sterling, played by Kirk Douglas. And now there's that whole, you know, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in element to this movie. Which, you know, done a lot of times, uh, maybe not as overused in the 1940s as it is now, but not something wholly original. But what the strength of this movie is absolutely in its writing absolutely in his writing there are so many fantastic lines um i'm sure i won't couldn't possibly capture all of them uh but i think one of the one of the moments made me laugh out loud um mitchum's character jeff bailey is uh trying we're still kind of midway through the movie he's still trying to kind of ignore the idea that he's being pulled back into all this nefarious cloak and dagger type stuff and kirk douglas's character shows up at the door and he's like oh mitchum answers the door and he's like oh you you surprised me and kirk douglas says i hate surprises myself you want to just shut the door and forget it, and uh, I'm sure it sounds so great coming out of Kirk Douglas's mouth. You know, he he has such the such an effortless um, charisma. Uh, I I absolutely love Kirk Douglas. I think he's one of my favorite actors uh, in this time and all throughout this movie. Just just constantly, constantly, constantly uh, lines like. How big a chump can you get to be? I was finding out. Or, oh, there's one um, about a sign oh, that I really loved. And I don't... Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, this one. Um, uh, Mitch, uh, Kirk, no, not Kirk Douglas. Um, one of the characters says that they find... Um, Mitchum, you know, running this gas station. Another character says, I often wondered what happened to him. Then one day I'm breezing through here, and there's his name up on a sign. And Mitchum says, it's a small world. And the guy says, yeah, or a big sign. And it just, ah, man, I, I love it. It's so clever. It's so, I don't know, off the cuff you know, the de line delivery from all these role characters, you know, even down to the, the lesser known ones. Uh, I think that was from Joe, Joe's character, the character of Joe played by Paul Valentine. Not, none of that, none of it comes out forced. You know, there are a lot of these moments, a lot of lines, especially in this time period where, yeah, it, it, it looks good and it sounds good and it's witty and it fits the flow, but, but just the delivery is not quite there. And it just, there's enough, of of a of a forced element behind it that it's like oh well man you could have you had it but man Mitchum Douglas you know Rhonda Fleming Jane Greer all of them are just so perfect uh, in in this and I I love it I love it so much it was such a fun movie and uh, g given you know the kind of dour nature of 
being pulled back into the the world of being a private investigator and kind of nefarious um, criminal people. I think this movie is is a lot of actual upbeat fun, which is very odd uh, and and an interesting tonal uh, element. Also features a pretty solid uh, action sequence, especially for the time. And great lighting work, great shadow work, a uh, lot of fun, a lot of, lot of good stuff. So I really liked Out of the Past, highly recommend it, and uh, that's my number six in March. Out of the Past, the score of an 80. Number five, the top five here, last of the documentaries on this list. Uh, this one I saw March 15th, it has... Uh, it was about 118 minutes, just shy of two hours long, from 1994. My brief summary, The Life and Times of a Cartoonist for Underground Comics. Comics with an X. Uh, I gave this an 80 as well. It has 95% last time I looked on Rotten Tomatoes. Directed by Terry Zweigoff, starring Robert Crumb and uh, his friends and family, is the documentary Crumb. So, this is the only film of my top seven on this list that I was aware of before seeing it. I didn't know a lot about Crumb, but I had seen the poster a lot, I knew the title, I knew it was a documentary. I think I had a vague idea that Crumb, uh, Robert Crumb was a cartoonist uh, slash artist. Uh, he, is, has, he, he was responsible for Keep on Truckin', Fritz the Cat, and... Uh, was just a, a huge presence and, and a big name in underground comics and and kind of pushing a lot of boundaries in that way. The film talks to him, it talks to uh, his mother, brothers, wife, ex-girlfriends, and uh, shows tons and tons of excerpts of his comics that are varying levels of dark, comedic, um, R-rated for sure, uh, you know, just things that are kind of seem insane that they were even feasible to to, to put out in, for consumption, uh, you know, 20, 25, 30 years ago or so. And the the way that the documentary unfolds, it, it's connecting the content of his comics to, you know, his head, to his subconscious to to the things working and and kind of jumbled around up up and up inside of of Robert Crumb and it it really is kind of incredible how you know he how unfiltered that he's able to be in this documentary it you know it, it's the kind of in, in a situation that you always want to see about a doc in a documentary about a person about a thing you want it to be completely transparent you want it to be have as little filter as possible you want uh, to to dive as deep into their subconscious into their mind into the way they work into the way they think as you possibly can because if you can't then you're hiding stuff that if you can't then there's there's more there that the documentary isn't pulling out and I never felt that way about crumb it it goes deep it's dark uh he admits to 
many, many, many things uh, in relation to his creation of comics and, and, you know, what he, his life as a whole. And then you get to talk to his family and they are just as, if not more, uh, you know, odd that as, as he is. And, and, and that is in and of itself kind of insane. He, he's clearly, uh, and I guess that maybe that's not fair to say, uh, you know, I, I was going to say he's clearly an, an odd, unique person, but honestly, you know, I think if you give anybody this kind of treatment, if you, if anyone allows a documentary to be made about themselves and is willing to be as transparent as possible, I think everyone kind of shows up the same. I think everyone kind of shows up, yeah, I've got these hidden desires. Yeah, I've got these hidden thoughts, hidden feelings, hidden processes that I, I run through in my head. And I think we would all kind of probably, you know, be better for it and showing it and being open about it. But ultimately, I think everyone hides a lot of these truths about themselves and so to to imply that crumb is is so strikingly different from everybody is probably not true you know i think the same thing would be you know i think a lot of the reactions i see in the reviews for this movie um you know how he he mentions being sexually aroused by bugs bunny uh and 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 so on and things things like that you know i think everyone you know myself included would have you know kind of you know these things inside us that you know i you know i'm sure there are things that i kind of consider second nature to myself kind of you know oh yeah of course i think about this oh yeah of course i've said this or i do this or whatever it is that for me is just normal and yet many, 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 many others would say, wait, what? I've never even considered X, Y, Z. And I think that's true for almost everybody. And that's what makes this such an interesting documentary because Crumb holds nothing back. And in doing so, not only does he let us into his own mind, not only does he let us into who he is as an artist, as a cartoonist, as a person, uh, as a you know husband wife family whatever um he also kind of opens this doorway to yeah everyone's like this and i think the documentary and maybe i don't know how how intentional this was but certainly worked on me kind of by using his family and showing the sort of pervasive and uh, inner monologues that they have as well really does uh, sort of imply that this is everyone. You know, we're all kind of victims and of, of this circumstance that you can't just, you know, we've. I, you can answer these questions as many times as you want, but until you're being tr truthful and, and completely honest, you're far less fascinating. You're far less interesting. You're far less of a compelling character. 
and all of these people in, in Crumb are so forthcoming, so open, that it for me, it really made me yearn for a reality where we could all be like that, you know, where, you know, given given how much of this film, you know, deals with, you know, the sexual elements, you know, if 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 everyone's sexual fetishes could be, you know, transparent and and surface level, if it wasn't such a taboo, I I feel like things would just be so much better. And and that can also extend to to non-sexual ideologies and, and, and thoughts and considerations as well, you know. I think we're at a point where so many people are so afraid to to uh, to, to, to kind of reveal themselves and to be so vulnerable and to be so uh, transparent. They throw up these walls around them and it, it ultimately just, it does what walls do. They, they keep people out, they keep people separate, they, they draw lines and, and we become more disconnected from each other as a, as a result. And that is unfortunate, unfortunate. Um, and a shame. And it's it's great to see someone be so cavalier about so many things that a lot of people would would be very uh, not okay with. And I I appreciated it quite a bit. So I really like Crumb. I I thought it was a fascinating fascinating look into. Robert Crumb's life. So that's my number five in March num uh, with a score of 80. Number four, foreign film. First foreign language film on this list. It is, uh, I saw this one March 30th, 2019. It's a little over two hours at 123 minutes. It's from 1991. My summary, two young vagrants meet and fall in love. Gave this an 81. It has an 85% last time I looked on Rotten Tomatoes. Directed by Leos Carax, starring Juliette Binoche and Denis Levant. Maybe pronouncing that right. I know he's French, but I don't know. People pronounce things how they do, uh, among others, but those are the two main names. Uh, this is The Lovers on the Bridge. The Lovers on the Bridge. So, yeah, Julie Binoche and Denis Levant play vagrants. They are just kind of have shitty lives. Uh, and they kind of meet, come together, and suddenly, against perhaps their better judgment, against perhaps uh, the will of the world, maybe even, uh, they are connected, you know, uh, Levant plays Alex, uh, a, a, a would-be circus performer. He is uh, a substance abuser. He's addicted to alcohol. He has a lot of problems in and of himself, uh, which uh, at first glance would not seem like someone that Michelle, Benoche's character, would, would put herself with, except... Uh, Michelle is a painter, and the reason she's on the street is, um, I believe she was in a relationship, 
didn't work out. She's kind of kicked out of, of where she was. And also, she's going blind. Uh, that is the most important fact uh, of this pair, is that Juliette Pinoche's character, Michelle, is going blind. And it is that affliction that causes Levant's Alex to be by her side all the time. He is helping her. He is, uh, you know, assisting her. He is, you know, being that shoulder to cry on, being someone she can, uh, you know, depend on, rely on, etc., etc., etc. And as the film progresses, you know, these two people are such tragic humans um they they given the nature of their lives given where they're at in in life they are incapable of approaching a a problem approaching an issue in a manner that you would expect a person to you know you get upset at something uh something doesn't go right for you something is is a problem and their reaction, their response, uh, particularly from uh, Alex, is unconventional, to say the least. It is, it is very much not how most people would respond, most people would react. And yet, at the same time, you know, Carax does such a great job of, of showing these reactions and these, these decisions in a way that makes them still feel real you know i think most people that would watch this movie probably never were homeless and therefore it's not incredibly easy to connect with those types those characters because you know you don't really have a basis you see a homeless person on the street they're asking you for money they're you know sitting on an overturned milk cart milk crate they're they're you know holding a sign saying you know what happened to them and why they can't get money or why they don't have it and why they need food or shelter or clothing or whatever it is and that's kind of what most people know of uh, uh, as far as homeless vagrants and those types of people are concerned uh, and it's unfortunate you know I think there's so much I'm I'm there has to be so much more because there is always so much more to a person than what you see. And Lovers on the Bridge shows the the sort of roller coaster of highs and lows that they go through. Uh, there's a sequence, oh my goodness, my favorite sequence of the movie is on said bridge, uh, Alex and Michelle basically run from one end to the other and the camera is pulled out uh for for um like a not quite a little more than definitely more than a medium shot but it's not you know a super long shot but it's just a a, a wide shot of them cro- going across the bridge and in the background are fireworks and they they the colors you know light up the sky light up the bridge light up these characters their faces their eyes everything about them and they're just it's it's this moment of pure bliss pure unfiltered bliss and in that instance you you 
can't help but connect to them because if these people who have no home, who are struggling for food, for, for water, for warmth, for clothing, if they can kind of pause that drive to survive, that survival instinct, long enough, you know, for this, you know, minute and a half, two minutes of just joy, just, just unadulterated joy, you know, that, that is so powerful, and Karak's, oh man, it's just a beautifully shot sequence, Uh, I I thought it was spectacular, It, it really set the stage for the whole movie for me, because after that, it's, it's a pretty <laughs> downward slope. It's a pretty steep hill uh, that we fall as, you know, the kind of climax of the movie reaches us and, and we get some almost uh, unforgivable actions being taken. And um, which is, yet again, another instance of, you know, these are real people and just like everyone else, it's very, very easy to go from the lowest of the low to the highest of the highs, and vice versa. You can't, you know, things just don't go upward for you and then plateau forever. You know, things are up and down and up and down. And I think just, just so much about Lovers on the Bridge was really exceptional, really fun, um, the final shot of the film, I think, is also incredibly picturesque. So many moments in this. And it's not a crisp film, necessarily. You know, it's not, say, like a Blade Runner 2049 or 2001 A Space Odyssey where you could freeze frame every shot and it's, you know, man, put this on your wall. I wouldn't say it's like that. But it's it's the the shots in, in The Lovers on the Bridge are far more iconic, far more just just wow, I just, I love experiencing this, you know, it, it's not crisp enough to, to be a painting, almost, but I, I think that's kind of the point, is it shouldn't be, because this isn't, you know, um, a refined, uh, uh, perfect life, these are people who, went through the shit, man, <laughs> they went through a ton to get to this point, to make it this far, and, um, it's, it's a gritty, grimy undertaking, and just, just experiencing it with them is the point, it's not lingering on it in, for the years and, and time to come, uh, so, Binoche and Levant are exceptional. I thought they were both very, 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 very good. Levant, this is only the second film I've seen him in. The first being uh, the far more recent Holy Motors, which he is also incredible in. Uh, So I recommend that one as well. He is uh, quite a chameleon. Quite a chameleon. So that's my number four uh, from March. uh, With a score of 81, The Lovers on the Bridge. Number three, Nitty Gritty here, another foreign language film. I saw this one March 21st. It is 142 minutes, two hours and 22 minutes long. It is from 1969. 
Uh, my brief summary, underground resistance fighters in France. I gave this an 86. It has a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, directed by Jean-Pierre Melville, uh, starring Lino Ventura, Paul Maurice, Jean-Pierre Cassel, Simone Signoret, Paul Crochet, Christian Bobier, Claude Mann. I'm sure I'm butchering these names. Uh, this is Army of Shadows. Army of Shadows. Uh, this is the 79th highest rated film on Letterboxd as of this moment. Army of Shadows uh, finds Philippe Gerbier, Gerbier, Gerbier uh, played by Lino Ventura, uh, who is um, part of the res French resistance against uh, Nazi occupation. And the very early moments of the movie, he has been betrayed by an informant. Uh, and he was uh, pretty high up in this resistance hierarchy. And uh, the film progresses as he escapes uh, the Nazis and now must, um, despite remaining quiet and, and hiding his identity and, and who he is, is out for revenge against uh, this informant and constantly under threat from Nazi occupation. So... It's it's a long one. Not gonna lie, it's a very long movie. It is not, um, and it's a slow movie. It's a lot of dialogue, and it's also not in English. So, relatively high barrier to entry for a lot of people, I'm guessing. But, 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 I had the same expectation. I didn't go in with <laughs> with high expectations. I expected it to be. Uh, kind of a snooze and um hey that was uh that was my loss it it is definitely a slow burn it is definitely a, a film with very incremental gains it is uh you know one of those things where as i would expect of actual um resistance fighters against the nazis you take every single inch you can win and that's what this film portrays it is kind of a slog but it is a a slog where if you can just make it to the end if you can get to the other side that is the victory both in in terms of the film and in terms of of nazi occupation you know it, it's part of just the being in the resistance is like i just got to survive right like how many people were not able to survive nazi occupation were not able to survive world war ii were not able to survive concentration camps and and work camps, and so on and so forth. Hundreds, thousands, millions of people uh, everywhere, you know, could not survive. And this is a movie about people who are quite honestly willing to do anything to, to get through. And Army of Shadows is, is not an easy film. It, it, is, it requires a lot out of you. To, to follow it, to understand it, the, the, the movements and the characters are difficult to, you know, the, the film isn't just going to spoon feed you, okay, this is the guy, he's the head of this, he works with them, they're doing this thing, the goal is that, it kind of just throws you into the middle of it, you're, you're just, it, 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 it it adheres to this idea that 
if the characters are going to take the time to explain everything, then they're losing valuable time of doing. They're risking exposing themselves to informants that are going to betray them. They're risking, you know, their plans not working because they run out of time, etc., etc., etc. And so the film operates the same way in that it can't take that time to show you what's happening. It's got it's spending way too much time creating an atmosphere, creating a, a world, creating a uh, a place where one wrong step gets your head cut off. One wrong step throws you in a concentration camp. One wrong step and, and you're never heard from or seen again. And none of that is more true than in Lino Ventura's performance of Philippe Gerbier, you know, someone who we see in the early parts of the movie is uh, captured and, and trapped in a Nazi prison camp. And by getting out relatively early in the film, it kind of hangs over you for the rest of the movie that he knows he's been there and, and miraculously has come out the other side uh, capable of continuing to work against these these horrific, you know, crimes. And, and it, it's this sort of unspoken thing because you would expect, obviously these guys who are part of the resistance are, are aware, like, there's a lot of risk here. <laughs> you know, we aren't just normal people to the Nazis. You know, we are, by working against them, by being associated with the resistance, you know, that ups the danger considerably. But the majority of them have not been trapped, have not been caught, have not been imprisoned before. They don't really know the realities. They know stories, they have an idea, but it's far, far different than actually being part of there, being in there. And Gerbier has. He was there. It's hanging over him. He knows what's at risk. He knows what's at stake better than anyone else around him. And it is so, so important that everything goes off without a hitch, without a problem, without anyone leaking information. And to create that atmosphere, that mood in this film, you know, Melville does such an impeccable job of, you know, just walking down the street, the sounds of feet on sidewalk, the lights overhead, the the bombers in the sky above. It, it just, it all serves such a, fur, uh, uh, such a, such a great purpose of, man, it, it's, it's, you know, how, for me, I'm just like, how how is this possible? How can you possibly be so? Uh, God, it, it just sounds awful. It, it just looks and feels incredibly awful. And and you know, you really have to ask yourself, you know, could I have the resolve to 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 uh, to fight? back, you know, in the face of such overwhelming monstrosities, in the face of such tragedy, in the face of such danger and peril, and it's not an easy question, you know, you all, you think to yourself, of course, you know, I wouldn't let somebody control me, wouldn't let them, you know, intimidate me, but you say that at the beginning, and, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths later, uh, you know, when you everyone around you on your block has been subsequently taken and never heard from again, when, you know, you 
can no longer contact your family because they're gone. They have been taken when you can't, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, I will do anything it is to survive, including being complicit in the things happening around me. And it's a remarkable sort of human nature question. And I think, you know, to, to kind of talk more about Gerbier's character, his performance is very subtle. I think a lot of the time he, he kind of wears the same facial expression, whether he's imprisoned, whether he is out, whether he is dealing with other people he trusts, whether he's dealing with people he doesn't trust, whether he's in danger, whether he's confident, whatever the situation. A lot of the times he's wearing the same facial expression. And yet, I don't know, you know, he, he, he might have been like one of the original uh, members of the class in like just acting with your eyes uh, that Tom Hardy went to and graduated from because despite how he has this tight-lipped, flat expression so often in this film, I always felt like I knew what was going on in his head. I always felt like I knew whether he was scared, whether he was confident, happy, relieved. I think a lot of that has to do with the circumstances that the film puts him in and giving us a greater understanding of just how important it was for him to not get seen or to to reach this person in time or to have such a conversation or to uh, achieve such a thing you know obviously the film plays a huge role in that moment those moments but it also is is a testament to 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 Ventura's performance and it was his performance that really hooked me uh in this movie i think there are some pretty striking shots uh there's a sequence running through sort of this underground area uh, with with light and shadows throughout and, and uh, a smoke bomb sort of thing. It's really strange. But I, it was such a great visual moment. Uh, there's, I mentioned sort of the bombs overhead. There's a sequence of him walking down the street and there's a plane goes by overhead and, you know, you can hear the, the every step he takes is so loud and so pronounced and it really creates this chilling atmosphere, this chilling uh, you know, one wrong step, you know, you almost get to the point where, man, if he was walking a little quicker, that would be very suspicious. If he was, you know, if he, he stuttered once in his, his progress, they would get him. And the movie doesn't have to say that. It doesn't have to, you know, put that on his face. It does it through just the sounds. It does it through just the, the the dread that has creeped through the film from the very beginning. And uh, that is not an easy thing to accomplish. And, and Melville pulls it off uh, quite, quite fantastically. So, number three from 1969. Number three in March with a score of 80 six is army of shadows army of shadows number two second highest rated film that i saw for the first time in march i saw it march 7th 
Uh, it's 89 minutes long, just shy of an hour and a half. It is from 1980. My summary, a rebellious punk hopes to reunite with her father and become a family again. I gave this an 87. It has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, last I looked. Directed by Dennis Hopper, starring Dennis Hopper, Linda Manns, Sharon Farrell, Raymond Burr, and Don Gordon, is the film Out of the Blue. Out of the Blue. Uh, so, Rebellious Punk is Linda Manns, who is the daughter of Dennis Hopper's character, Don. Uh, he was a truck driver, drank a lot, and um, we see in a, a sort of flashback sequence or early on in the movie, he drank and kind of lost control of his truck and hit a busload of children. Uh, he went to jail, and when he gets out, his daughter, CB, Linda Manns, um, is now this kind of rebellious punk. And uh, look, you know, she lives with her mom, Sharon Farrell's character. And now that Hopper's back, she wants to be a family again. She hopes that they can be this family again. You know, she missed him. You know, it, 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 it's a, a gap in the last five years of her life that she can now fill in. And yet things don't really progress that direction. Um, things really don't uh, seem to want to go there. And it is all CB can do to kind of stitch together this, this broken, ripped family and try and try and try to make it as authentic, as real as, as possible. And uh, it's not, oh man, it's it's not really, um, <laughs> it's not really possible. It's not really something she can do. You know, she's a kid. She thinks that she can do it, but not really. Uh, Dennis Hopper, as the director, is very self-assured and... I think nothing about this movie is better than Linda Manns. I thought she was just unbelievable, unbelievably exceptional as as CB. I was so drawn to her, so sort of infatuated with her performance, and it is such a heartbreaking movie. Uh, you, you just not. I, I'm going to try to avoid saying any real specifics about what um, what happens but suffice to say uh, things don't work out and it is not uh, things don't turn out so great um, who uh, you end up with you know this broken family unit and you know, CB goes out to out to the truck to get on the radio and talk to you know other truckers in her spare time. She uh, she she listens to loud music. She she just wants to have a normal life, and you you get you. 
I think Mans does such a great job of showing you that these past five years have, in one sense, forced her to grow up, forced her to mature. You know, her mom is clearly unfit, but she's still there, and, and CB has had to kind of grow up on her own. And so when you grow up on your own, yeah, you have to mature at a different rate and in a different way than people who grow up with, you know, dependable parents. But you also lack, by, by the nature of it being different, you lack other things that the kids uh, who maybe don't mature quite as fast do end up with. These, these other elements, these other features. And she does such a good job of showing how, yeah, you're, you're, you kind of think of yourself as an adult because for five years or so, she kind of probably has had to be an adult. But at the same time, due to not having and, and not living a life that a traditional kid would live, she is woefully unprepared for some of the harsher realities that await her. She is woefully underprepared for... Um, the truth in a lot of circumstances and uh, that kind of arrives in the form of her father who she says oh answer to all my problems and he's like you know <laughs> no this is not this is not what you think it's going to be and you know he ends up you know not only disappointing her in in how he re-enters the family but the di the dynamic between the two of them is so it, it, so devastating devastating because obviously she wants him to be dad she wants him to be her father and he's returned to her, and she, you know, is, you know, the thing he misses the most, the things he, the thing, you know, the person he loved, what he wanted most while he was in prison, and they kind of meet, and neither is exactly what they remembered the other as. Uh, they both have changed so substantially in these last five years, and it's, it's really tough to reconcile that. And the film... You know, Hopper, direct as the director, does a great job of showing us that you can't. It's kind of this twisted and warped uh, uh, variation on you can never really go home again, which is the opposite of what you'd normally expect. You know, you can always go home, you can always go back home. They're always there to welcome you, they're always with open arms. And this is Hopper going back home again and Hopper the actor going back home again, and Hopper the director, and as far as I'm concerned, uh, is saying you can't. It's never going to be the same. And I think that's such a fascinating sort of thesis, and one that this film absolutely drives home. Uh, and again, to, to avoid kind of giving up any of the specifics the final five to ten minutes of this movie are incredible they're they're so haunting 
and chilling. And I watched it twice because I was just so enthralled by what took place. And I think it's just really, really, it's such, so tragic. It's so sad and so dis, dis, disheartening and, and powerful. And I think, you know, just having that moment on film, having that available to see, to witness, to watch, whew, man, uh, it is not easy. You know, Hopper does not pull any punches uh, in the ending of this movie. It is, it goes some places, and it is, it is a tough watch. It is a tough watch, but I really, really love this movie. I think Hopper does a great job. This is a pretty easy watch, you know, it's only about an hour and a half long, and I think that lends itself to kind of being this this bucket of cold water of, yeah, it's this quick, it, it can happen in an instant, it can happen so quickly and so fast that you, you can barely have time to register it that everything has changed, and I, I just really appreciated what Hopper was doing in this, It's it's so natural and simplistic and yet it, it, it is immensely powerful immensely powerful uh, so that's out of the blue my number two from March and uh, with a score of 87 overall <clears throat> that is right which leaves us with just number one number one. Number one overall movie that I saw in March. Saw it March 3rd, very early in the, in the month, uh, and nothing quite caught up to it. Uh, it's 104 minutes long. It is a foreign language film from 1959. My brief summary, remnants of the Japan army are abandoned by their command. I gave this film a 92 it has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Directed by Kon Ichikawa. Starring Eji Funakoshi, Osamu Takizawa, Mickey Curtis, Montaro Ushio, Kyo Sazanka, among others. Uh, Kon Ichikawa, the director. Um, this is the only thing I've seen from him. Uh, so this was uh, kind of going in here blind. But this is Fires on the Plane. Fires on the Plane. Uh, it takes place during the end, the, the winding down of World War II. Uh, and involved the remnants of a, of a Japanese army segment, band, group, troop, uh, who uh, are just kind of left out on their own. You know, no orders no direction uh just you know the war is basically over and uh we're done with you we don't need you anymore figure it out <laughs> it's kind of what this movie is and who man uh this movie goes places uh this movie goes a lot of places and uh it's brutal you know this this <laughs> it's not easy to talk about because basically the film just kind of chronicles a handful of these soldiers 
um, primarily, uh, I think, Tamora and Yasuda. Uh, and, and I think there's two, maybe three, that kind of show up most, re most frequently. And you just kind of watch them descend into madness, into um, primal animal instinct, and it is not fun. It is not an enjoyable movie. Uh, they face death, starvation. They encounter many others uh, on the, along their path who also the uh have 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 been in this this lifestyle for a week or or more and have already turned to some pretty drastic uh drastic measures and they have to deal with it they have to confront it head on they've got their people are crazy uh they're they're killing just to to sort of have some semblance uh, of, of what life was, what they're used to. They don't have any chain of command. No one is telling them what to do, and they are just out there on their own. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly dehumanizing. There's, um, <laughs> there's a moment, there's a scene where... I'm not going to remember the characters' names, but uh, they're they're held. The, there's like a standoff scene, and one man, like they both have a gun, and I think if I remember correctly, it's been over a month since I saw it. Uh, I think one throws a grenade at the other, and it it, it just you know they ultimately come it, it only results in in one man holding the other you know gunpoint right in front of them and neither of them is our, our primary character in this scene and they're kind of standing off to the side uh, and and it just you watch these these moments and and on one hand you know our, our main guy I think you know Tamora, kind of concerned that this is where he's headed you know you, you're seeing these other people who you know maybe not as steadfast as you are maybe a little weaker willed than we are or depending on how you're looking at it stronger willed to have the drive to you know go to these extent extremes who's to say but you're concerned about your path getting to where they are you're concerned about is that what I should be doing is that something I should pre be preventing you know what is my role here and I think that is so pivotal in this film is constantly asking yourself you know what is my job what what am I supposed to be doing right now because so long prior to when we pick up the film that's all they've been do been doing is this is my job I follow these orders, I do these things, I shoot these people, I protect these people, I, you know, wait for this signal, that signal, these orders, and now there's none of that, and you're just constantly like, okay, well, do I do this, and do I do this, and, and uh, you know, never having been a soldier, the, the mentality of it is, what what do I do now? What can I do now? What am I supposed to do now? And those are very difficult questions 
uh, for someone who has spent years of their life not needing to ask them, not questioning them, and now left to their own devices, everyone around you is, is approaching those issues from a different perspective. Maybe it's, okay, I'm going to take control and I'm not going to let anybody tell me what to do anymore. Or maybe it's, you know, uh, no one else deserves to be here. No one else deserves to do anything. Or it's, you know, there's so many permutations and variations on that look and we get to go and we interact with a bunch of different types of people. We see cannibals uh, during this film. Um, it's, It's really shocking and really devastating to see the results and the fallout uh, that happened to these soldiers, and it is not not fun. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's a, a very uh, real portrayal of these things. Uh, you know, the the cast, having read up, I, I read up on it. The cast was fed very little. Uh, they were not allowed to. Um, take care of their own personal hygiene. They, uh, the, the lead, uh, Tamora, played by Eji Funakoshi, was never, um, you know, he, he was, if I'm remembering this correctly, he was not told to eat less or, or, you know, restricted with what he could eat, but he chose to do so. He chose to starve himself um, and then eventually collapsed mid shoot and they had to stop production for like a week or two uh you know it's it's um (laughs) you know it it you just you, you you can't think rationally Given the circumstances, we can we we get here we hear Tamora's voiceover throughout the film, um, as he's struggling to to find his place in, in this world in in this madness. Uh, you get um, I think you know he's go in the midst of going through tuberculosis throughout the film. So you know he he's got his own issues on top of everything happening around him. Uh, you know, can, you know, which, which leads to yet another sort of challenge that the film offers, which is, can you, you know, you know, most of us, I would say the vast, vast, vast majority of us have no idea what this is like, you know, this is, this is fire festival turned up to, to 3000, I would assume. And, how how do you how do you be more than just a spectator for a film like this how how do you connect to any of these people when they are losing the thing that makes them relatable which is humanity and i think you know in the same vein that it's it's a question for these characters is how do they react now that they're not you know just listening to orders reacting to orders it's the viewer has to kind of take on their own agency you know am i going to let myself become connected to these people am i going to let myself choose am i going to choose to uh 
empathize, to sympathize, to to relate, because it's it's you can't. It's not just going to happen. I don't think it really can happen that way. You have to take that additional step because there's just such a wide gulf between the average person and these these poor soldiers. Um, you know, it's just, it's a chaotic, claustrophobic, mm, you know, just, just painful, painful war movie. Uh, and it's, it's, it's pretty, 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 pretty good. It's a very, very, very good film. Uh, that will challenge you and uh, really present the the. I mean, I, I feel like this is brought up a lot, and we see many movies that you know theoretically portray quote the horrors of war, uh, and and there are many that do so. Um, uh, Come and see another foreign language film uh, from Europe uh, is another one that does a great job of showing, you know the the pain and, and anguish of war and, and how pain, how terrible that becomes and what that's like and, and I think fires on the plane is a great example of this um, you know and we've seen it from a lot of different angles we've seen it in English from the American point of view we've seen it in Europe Asia uh, etc and uh, this is not I, I I got I I guess I would say come and see is the closest thing I can think of to what this is, uh, but they're still very strikingly different, and uh, worth worth seeing, um, because it feels very, it looks very authentic. It has very authentic feel. It's very dirty. It's like I said, they they really didn't eat. They really didn't you know groom themselves, and they they look the part. They act the part. Uh, 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 Ichikawa's direction is 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 just so on point, and uh, you know he he perfectly encapsulates this world, and whether you know even if it's ninety eight percent accurate, ninety three, ninety two, eighty five, whatever, however accurate it is to what really took place, uh, at, and, you know in this time, watching it there doesn't ever seem to be a shadow of a doubt in the characters uh in in the direction or or just in the viewer watching it that it never it never breaks from this what's been world that they've established and that is that is so painful it's so so painful to watch it is not not fun so yeah check it out it's it's great <laughs> It's a really good movie, but difficult one. It isn't. It's only uh, you know 104 minutes, so you know less than two hours. Less than two hours. That is the key. Okay, um, that is it. That is the number one. Uh, so here's my top ten. Run down the list one more time for you. Apollo 11, Twelfth in Delaware, Us, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Out of the Past, Crumb, The Lovers on the Bridge. Army of Shadows, Out of the Blue, and finally, Fires on the Plain. Uh, it was a really strong, strong, strong month. Uh, there were 33 films I watched 
that uh, I gave a 70 or higher. One, two, three, four, five, six of them were rewatches. So 27 brand new films that I gave a 70 or higher, uh, which is pretty good. Uh, Fires on the Plane is now in my top 300 of all time. I'll have to, uh, I don't know that I've fully adjusted that yet, which, oh no, I have. Yes, it currently ranks as number 233 out of the top 300, which um, drifts down to a bunch of films with this rating in, of 91 and uh, no lower. So that is great. Uh, love adding, finding and discovering new films that do make that huge impression and, and, and impact on all the things that I've seen. Uh, that's gonna be it though for today's episode. Uh, thank you for listening, uh, it does mean a lot. Check out some of these movies. Uh, if, if you would like to follow me on Letterboxd, at Circle of Film, Twitter, Circle of Film, uh, send an email, circleoffilm at gmail.com. If you have a top 100, 200, 250, 300 movie list you want to share, I would love to see it and add it to uh, a spreadsheet that I keep track of. If you would like to support the show, uh, you can continue to listen. That's always helpful. Uh, most places podcasts can be found. Uh, also like rate review subscribe to you know will help as well or you can support the show monetarily at patreon.com slash circle of film for as little as eight cents an episode uh, just just eight cents thank you once more and as always have a week so long She fades from view. So long, farewell, I'll be to say adieu. Nothing's really left or lost without a trace. Nothing's gone forever, only.